had my studio in my home. So my studio and, the, and my desk there, my, my phone, was probably about 15 feet from our dining room table. And um, whenever the phone rang, when we were at dinner, I was up and answering the phone. Because you know why? Because phone meant business, and business meant money. Well, you know, uh, that went on for a little while. And so, and Kathy will probably remind me if I'm correct, but I, I recollect something like this. She said, if you answer that phone during dinner one more time, don't ever come back to dinner. Something like that. <laughs> something like that. Um, you know, we're motivated by a lot of things in our life, and, and a lot of those things are different activities, things that we do or need to do or think are important. And, and during that time, God began to work in my life because if there was work, I was going. I mean, I was out. I would take a picture of, well, I didn't do pet pictures. It's one thing I would not do. <laughs> Did not like pet pictures. It just, but if pretty much anything else, I would be out there. I would take the picture. I'd be gone as, as, out of the house. I was going crazy. And then the process in the work, because it was just me, it was crazy. And then family and, and church responsibilities on top of it. And then leaving that to go to seminary, but still being a photographer at the same time, because I still had my business to finish up, the contracts I had to finish when I first got here. All of that building up and then being here full time and then getting the great idea to go on for my doctoral work, realizing, that, oh man, I love to read, but come on, full time in ministry, doctoral work, family, just One of the courses that I took um, required me to write a, a paper. It was the major thing I had to do for that class. Um, and it ended up being on the Sabbath. And the paper changed my life. I mean, literally changed my life. Probably saved a number of years off of my life as well. Um, there was a book that I read that was part of the class, um, and it was a book by a medical doctor, Richard Swenson, and it's called Margin, Restoring Emotional, Physical, Financial, and Time Reserves to Overloaded Lives. Um, it has not only helped me in ministry as a pastor, but has helped me in my family as a, as a husband and a father and now a grandfather. Um, I'm going to read from pages 13 and 14, just in his introduction. Um, he says this. <clears throat> the conditions of modern-day living devour margin. If you're homeless, we direct you to a shelter. If you're penniless, we offer you food stamps. If you're breathless, we connect you to oxygen. But if you're marginless, we give you yet one more thing to do. Marginless is being 30 minutes late to the doctor's office because you were 20 minutes late getting out of the hairdresser because you were 10 minutes late dropping the children off at school because the car ran out of gas two blocks from the gas station and you forgot your purse. <laughs> Sound familiar? Margin, on the other hand, is having breath left at the top of the staircase, money left at the end of the month, and sanity left at the end of adolescence. <laughs> Parents, do you understand that? 
Marginless, marginless is the baby crying and the phone ringing at the same time. Margin is grandma taking the baby for the afternoon. Marginless is being asked to carry a load five pounds heavier than you can lift. Margin is finding a friend to carry half the burden. Marginless is not having time to finish the book you're reading on stress. Margin is having time to read it twice. Marginless is fatigue. Margin is energy. Marginless is red ink. Margin is black ink. Marginless is hurry. Margin is calm. Marginless is anxiety. Margin is security. Marginless is culture. Margin is counterculture. Marginless is reality. Margin is remedy. Marginless is the disease, and margin is its cure. Here's his main point in the book, um, if I can kind of put it together. We need to learn to set limits on what we can appropriately handle in life activity-wise. He was a medical doctor with a large career, head of a department at a hospital, huge home, expensive cars. He ended up taking a lesser position, selling his big house, getting downsizing his cars because he was finding that his family was falling apart because he was never home. And he realized that home is what's important. Family is what's important. I don't need the bigger house. I don't need the expensive cars. I don't need the luxury vacations. I don't need the title at the workplace. But what I do need is that close relationship with my family. And he downsized. We must learn to set limits on what we can appropriately handle in life activity-wise. But many of us aren't good at setting limits on our activities, and that's the reality. We're just not good at that. We don't, we say we want to, but I don't think we really do. We keep adding one more thing to our already overflowing to-do list, and as a result, we no longer have enough time to even breathe. The key is learning to cease and rest, he says, so that we can restore the space, the margin that we once had in life. Dr. Swenson writes this, margin is the amount allowed beyond that which is needed. It's the amount allowed beyond that which is needed. It's sometimes held in reserve for contingencies or unanticipated situations. It's the leeway we once had between ourselves and our limits. You know how we say, I've had it up to here? Well, margin is saying, okay, I've had it up to here. So we have a lot more room before we blow our top and go crazy. But we're living here, and we should be living down here. Does that make sense? Unfortunately, many are either very quickly reaching their limit or have consistently been living over their limit. In other words, they have no margin between what they can effectively handle and what's going to drive them absolutely crazy. There's no distance between that anymore. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you, many of you probably have experienced that, and maybe even are right now. Work, often with further commutes, long commutes, school and all the extracurricular activities that go along with it, recreation, not only our own recreation, but the recreation that we want our kids to be involved in, all of it. Maintenance, lawn, garden, home, vehicles, and the many other demands 
and activities that demand of our resources and time. And what I found over the years is that the pursuit of those activities will define how you live. Not might. It will define how you live. But we're supposed to be Christians, right? We're supposed to be followers of Jesus Christ. And it shouldn't be the pursuit of our activities that defines how we live. It should be the pursuit of an ongoing love relationship with Jesus Christ that defines how we live. Am I right? I'm missing my amen corner back there. These are are good things. All right. As I see it, it comes down to one major thing that we need to understand about life and activities and time and all that kind of stuff, and it's stewardship. It's stewardship. I think that's the bottom line. Christian, listen, everything belongs to God in your life. Absolutely everything in your life belongs to God. Amen. (laughs) Yes. And God has given us the awesome and huge responsibility to manage his time appropriately his way. Because time is also something that he's given us. And time is an essential component of our topic today, Sabbath keeping. Now, Sabbath keeping is controversial subject among Christians. It has been for a long time. You know, we, we all, many of us, not so much me. I did, actually didn't do that. A lot of people grow up, you don't do anything on Sunday. You don't play sports, you don't do it, you stay home, you eat with your family, you, you know, you read the Bible, and I don't know, since I didn't do it, I don't know what you all used to do. But, but it's a time when you don't do anything. You go to church, you maybe spend time with family, but you don't play outside, you don't do anything. Makes it very controversial when you get a guy like me, and I first come to the church, and I start having softball games on Sunday afternoon with the youth group against their parents as an outreach. I don't know. I mean, there were some, you know, pockets of problem, but I think we got past that. Not only is Sabbath keeping controversial among Christians, it's also a badge of honor for those who claim to be Christians, but also tell you, look, if you also got to follow the Old Testament law, specifically Sabbath keeping. So I have two objectives uh, objectives this morning. First, to examine our text, because this is encountering Jesus. As we encounter Jesus, as he walks the road of life in his journey towards Jerusalem, if you were here on Good Friday, as he's doing that, and as he's constantly being um, uh, confronted by the scribes and the Pharisees about the stuff that he does on the Sabbath, then let's look at what does Jesus do and what does he say about Sabbath keeping? That's my first objective. The second objective is how do we make application to what Jesus says and does to our often overburdened and overwhelmingly busy lives. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 to 5 first. Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. And by the way, um, if... If anyone in the church wants one of these books, let me know by Tuesday. I will buy one and order it and give it to you. I see a couple of hands going up already. But let me know by email because I won't remember. I think this is so important that I'll personally buy these books for you. Email me, text me before Tuesday so I can make sure it's here by next Sunday. Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. On the Sabbath while he... 
again, Luke makes it very clear, it just wasn't any day of the week, it was the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, while he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read? Oh, this, I, I didn't get to this in the message, but these are scribes and Pharisees. They read the Bible. They read their Old Testament. Jesus was basically saying, you're ignorant. You're like little children. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was set aside by God on, uh, on the last day uh, of his work of creation, his week of creation. Um, it's the last day of the week, Friday sunset to Saturday sunset. Um, God purposed the Sabbath to set his people apart, to make them distinctive of anyone else that were around. It was a day to cease from work. Understand that word cease in the Bible when it's used in relationship to the Sabbath is your occupation. That's really important. Folks who are into the whole Sabbath keeping thing, they don't let you know that. When it says to cease from work, the work is the common word used for occupation. So it's a day to cease from work. It's a day to seek God's face in worship. That's the, the principal idea behind it. The ancient Israelites failed at it immensely. So much so that God sent them into exile into Babylon, and we read that in the prophet Jeremiah. God released them after 70 years, which was the Sabbath year. Remember this, the whole thing? Good. Because there was a connection between why they weren't keeping the Sabbath and how long they were kept. So they returned to, to Israel, and the religious leaders got together and said, Man, God really punished us because we weren't following the Sabbath, and we don't want to ever do that again. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to write up all these things, these, these rules, and, and, and all the things we can follow. It was huge, a book, well, a scroll, and it had all these rules and regulations that would help them to keep what God said was keep the Sabbath holy. Okay? One thing to remember God never told them to do that. God never told them to write that book. The people took the words that were written by the scribes and the Pharisees back then and put them on the same level as the Word of God. So by Jesus' day, people were trying to honor God not by obeying the Sabbath command in Scripture, but by trying to obey all the other stuff that these guys wrote about the Sabbath command. Does that, you understand what I'm saying? They didn't follow the command of God. They were following all the other rules that the Jewish leaders said you needed to follow in order to keep those things. It was their interpretations of it, and you, you get my point. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, time and time again we read, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the, the word Sabbath comes up and the religious leaders trying to show that Jesus is breaking the Sabbath. And all the time, Jesus was saying, listen, you have no idea what you're talking about. 
your interpretations are so far off from the intentions of God that, well, he gets angry with them at different times. Religious leaders criticized Jesus' disciples for picking and eating. This is rubbing. Again, there were rules in this part of the, the, the atonement that they had that specifically deal, dealt with, um, uh, with Sabbath regulations. And, um, I mean, you, you, you couldn't take the grain, any kind of grain, if you rubbed it in order to get the, the, the husk off of it, then that was not allowed. You could eat the grain... So if it was already days before, you could pick it up and eat it, but you couldn't like rub it to get, it was a banana, you couldn't peel the banana, okay, in order to eat. That was the, that was the things we're saying. So he's saying, look, um, your disciples are working, they're breaking a Sabbath law because they're walking through the field. It wasn't they were stealing the stuff, you were allowed to do that. Pick up a little grain, but they were rubbing it in their fingers first and eating it, they were breaking the law. Well, they were breaking their interpretation of God's Sabbath command. So Jesus says, listen, uh, have you not read, or let me remind you of something. When King David was on the run from Saul, and he went up to the priest, and it was on the Sabbath, and he went into the, the, the table of showbread, and they ate from the, the table of showbread. The bread that was there was reserved only for the priest, and it was, that was a Levitical law. You weren't allowed to do that from God. But God didn't punish him for that. Then using the Old Testament, Messi Old Testament Messianic title, Son of Man, Jesus states that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Again, time after time, whenever he's confronted with the, the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus is revealing to them who he is and they further get more upset with him. And, and this incident today that we're going to look at kind of throws them over the edge, and they're seeking to kill him after this. They've already made up their mind. So he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He uses the Son of Man, which is a messianic title. And Jesus is saying, look, I am God. And I had the right, I have the right to correctly define and interpret the Sabbath command because I was there that seventh day when I made it. Amen. That's what he was saying. And they understood that. And that's why later we're going to read that they left, they weren't happy. What Jesus was saying here is that showing compassion is never wrong, even if it's the Sabbath. The Apostle Mark adds something that Luke leaves out here, really important to the, to the context of what we're saying. Mark 2, 27 and 28 says this, And he, Jesus, said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus was defining Sabbath-keeping in Mark's Gospel. He was saying that, that God's intent for the, the Sabbath-keeping command was not to restrict or to hurt us. So that if you're hungry, you can peel the banana and eat it. If you're hungry, you can take, rub the, the husk off the grain and eat it. We're going to find out that uh, the next Sabbath, it's okay to heal a man who's, who's wounded on the Sabbath. He's saying that 
God's intent was never to restrict or to hurt us, but to help us and to make the Sabbath be a blessing to us. And folks, listen, we got to get that into our head because that changed my life. This book and the idea that the Sabbath is meant to be a blessing for us really changed my life, how I live my life. I believe that's what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he wrote his letter to the Christians at the church in Colossae. They were being told by some that they needed to follow Jesus, but also obey the Old Testament law, specifically Sabbath keeping. Again, not the Sabbath keeping here, but the Sabbath keeping and all the rules and nitpicking regulations that the religious leaders formulated after they came out of Babylon. And this is what Paul said, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to festival or holidays or new moon or a Sabbath. Not Sabbaths like in general, but a, the Sabbath on, a, on Saturday, Friday night to Saturday night. These, including the Sabbath, are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul was saying that, that this one day a week, this one day that was set aside as the Sabbath day for, for rest and for keeping, the way that God intended it, is a shadow of something much greater that was coming. Jesus, who is the Sabbath rest. That's why Jesus can say, Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come to me. Six to eleven. On another Sabbath, probably the next week, it could have been a week after that. On another Sabbath, verses six. To 11, he entered Jesus' synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. Isn't it crazy that they didn't care about the fact that Jesus could actually have the power of God to heal someone? They were going to use that as an excuse to accuse him for breaking the Sabbath law. It's crazy. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to him, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was fully restored. Can you imagine that? I mean, just think about it. The guy probably had his hand in his robe, right? Because it was disfigured, it was all withered up. and So he's probably like this in his robe. And then Jesus says, stretch out your hand. Wham. Brand new hand. Brand new hand. Not it came out and it started, you know, like you see on TV where... It starts stretching and goes like this, you know. Brings it out brand new. Took a lot of faith. I could spend the rest of the message talking about that man and the faith that he had to just stick his hand out when Jesus said to do it. 
stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. But they, the scribes and the Pharisees, were filled with fury. They just, he just healed someone, and they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. First, notice, where was Jesus on the Sabbath? In the synagogue. Second, where was the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath? All right, good. Now, another question. What do you think would have happened to that man with the withered hand if instead of going to synagogue that Sabbath, he went to see the camel races instead? He would not have, he would still have his withered hand. <laughs> More on that later. But just something to think about. <laughs> Opposition to Jesus by the religious leaders was increasing, and that was getting kind of quite open. They weren't in the synagogue that Sabbath. It tells you where their hearts were. They weren't there to worship God. They were there to trip up Jesus. The text tells us that they were watching him. I looked the word up. The Greek word for watch is uh, paratoronto. Paratoronto. It means to spy on or to lay in wait for, as if you're going to pounce upon them, to destroy them. Man. They wanted Jesus to heal the man with the withered hand so they can accuse him of breaking the law. Remember, not God's Sabbath command, but their list of interpretations and nitpicking rules about how to follow uh, the Sabbath command. When Jesus healed the man with the withered hand, he was reiterating his point from the last Sabbath that there's never a wrong time to do good or to show compassion to anyone. The scribes and the Pharisees, the text tell us, uh, left filled with fury. I had to look that word up too. It doesn't mean that they were just mad. It means that they were seething. The, The word fury actually means insane. Jesus drove them absolutely crazy. They just wanted him dead. Sabbath keeping. I want to spend a little bit of time at the end on that. We saw what Jesus did, what he said, how he dealt with it. What about us? What is Sabbath keeping for the Christian in 2017? I believe it's more essential than ever that we become people who are Sabbath keeping Christians. I believe it's one of the most significant things we can do to transform our overburdened, overwhelmingly busy lives into healthy, fruitful lives as followers of Jesus Christ. But we can't view Sabbath keeping like the religious leaders did, or it's just adding something to our already crazy lives, further decreasing any kind of margin that we're going to have in life. So what is Sabbath keeping? Mark 6.31, Jesus said this to his disciples. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even even to eat. For many are coming and going, and even had no leisure to even eat. Have you ever been there? So when we don't have leisure to eat, where do we go? Fast food, pick it up. And then what happens? We put on weight, amongst other things. But doesn't that describe us? We're coming and going and not enough time to eat? 
What was Jesus' answer to that overwhelmingly busy lifestyle, to the coming and the going? What did he say to his disciples? He said, rest. Rest. Truth is, because we've allowed ourselves to be too busy, we hurt. In a lot of different ways, we struggle. We struggle with priorities. We struggle with guilt. We struggle with pride. And there's just no time to rest, let alone to heal from whatever brokenness we might have. Been there? Maybe you're there right now. Listen, God has given us authority over all things in this world. Genesis 1.27 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion, rule, over the fish, over the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let them have dominion over all the earth. That, folks, includes our time. Apostle Paul, writing to the Ephesian Christians, said this is how we're to use our time. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of our time because the days are evil. Making the best use of our time. How you doing with that? How you doing with that? If you're like the rest of us, probably not that well. You and I, we need time to allow God to repair our lives. You know, still, I guess it was probably more popular before the 2000s, I guess. But this part of the church building used to be called what? What was the name of this part of the building? Sanctuary. A place to go and rest and heal and get recharged and, and renewed. And it was a safe place from the pressures of the world. We could come here. And I think it's a great term as well. But I think it can make us a, a little bit too inward focusing. I like the idea of worship center instead because it actually gives our focus on him. And as we're going to find, as we place our focus and worship on him, we're going to get the rest and the healing that we need. How do we allow God to repair us physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally, spiritually? Well, the best way to do that, the best way to make repairs to our broken, worn down lives is rest to stop, to cease being busy. And to the extent that you fail to do that, you will remain broken and worn down, ultimately no good to anyone, even God. That's a reality. So how to repair, how do we repair our broken down and worn out lives, and where do we find rest? Man, I keep coming back. Matthew 11, 28 to 29. Come to me, Jesus says. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus. Jesus is your rest. He's the only one that can repair our brokenness, the only one that can restore our life batteries, if you will, so that we can live the abundant life that he promises us. Only Jesus only a growing, loving, faithful, serving relationship with Jesus can bring the healing that we so desperately need. Well, how do we develop and nurture that kind of a relationship with Jesus? Take out your bulletins. 
Take a look at the front cover. What's the picture of? Here. I believe it's here on Sundays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Fridays and, and any other day that we have opportunity to gather here with God's people for the purpose of honoring Jesus, for worshiping Jesus, for learning about Jesus, for serving Jesus. It's in this place with these people that we find the rest that we need as we develop and nurture our relationship with Jesus. Yeah, I know. I can worship Jesus and be with him anywhere. It doesn't be in the building. You know, we spend so much time giving excuses for why we don't have to be here. We're like trying to convince ourselves. We need to be here. We need to... All right, look, you don't need to be here. You can go to another church. I'm not saying Calvary Baptist Church is the end. We need to be in, in God's church with God's people, worshiping God together if we're going to develop and nurture that ongoing love relationship with him and have the healing of our brokenness in our life because that's where rest is found. The problem is, 20 years that I've served here, I've seen far too many times that when people are struggling, when people are in crisis, when people are, there's no margin left. This is not the place they're coming. They're not going anywhere. And some people, I know that for a fact, they've, they've figured that this is just too big. My life is too complex. My, I, I don't have no room. I'm, I'm crazy. I, I can't go to church to worship God and be with God's people. There's just no more room on my plate for that. Then you need to throw your plate out. It... it, it burdens me, it even angers me that people who are in such a need of this and, are com and, and complaining on Facebook of all their problems and all this kind of stuff but they're and, and complaining to be a follower of Jesus Christ but are avoiding the places to develop a nurture relationship with him. I don't get it. But God does. And that's why I said Hebrews, he wrote Hebrews 10, 24, 25 and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's one of the things we get here. Love, encouragement, good works. Not neglecting the meeting together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The Apostle Paul wrote something to the Roman Christians, and it's a little longer, but I want to read it, because again, it, all, it just fits together here. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. That's not some spiritual thing. It really is us. That those gifts that are given to the church are for the purpose of building us up individually and together as the, the body of Christ here, which locally is Calvary Baptist Church. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deep, deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Two focuses. 
Jesus Christ, develop an ongoing love relationship with Him, and by doing that together with God's people, we're all built together. We become whole. When we're broken, we become whole. But it's done here in context of community. We need to get away from the busyness of life. We need to come here we, with these people to, to fellowship, to pray, to worship, to serve. And when you do, you will find the rest, and that rest will lead to your healing. The quote of the week is from James Augie. It's in your bulletin. It was up there. It was, it was a little long, but it says, The church is not a select circle of the immaculate, but a home where the outcasts may come in. It's not a place, it's not a palace with gate attendants and challenging sentinels along the entranceways holding off at arm's length the stranger, but rather a hospital where the brokenhearted may be healed and where all the weary and troubled may find rest and take counsel together. And I know that's what somebody just writes, so it's not inspired, but the psalmist in Psalm 147 verses 1 and 3 says this, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and, and a, a song of praise is fitting. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Psalm 147, the context is worship. So it's good to sing, it's good to come to worship, it's good to gather together to, to worship and honor God, because when we do, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Pastor and scholar J.C. Ryle said, it's only a few steps down from no Sabbath to no God. There's no rest in your life. You're not going to find room for God either. That's what he's saying. Philosopher, the non, he wasn't a Christian. In fact, he was pretty much against Christianity. Voltaire said, to destroy the Christian religion, you must first destroy the Christian Sunday. If, if, if they can destroy... And man, I'm telling you, they're getting good at it. With all the activities that go on Sunday, I can't, I got to work, I can't, my kids got to do this, I got a shower I got to go to, I got to, you know, there's always excuses for why not to be here. Always. If you destroy the Christian, in order to destroy the Christian religion, you must first destroy the Christian Sunday. If there's no place to rest, there's no place to be healed, there's no place to get strength, no place to nurture and develop our relationship with God, then Christianity falls apart. I'm going to end with this. I know I'm really late. I, this is just something I had to talk about today because it's, it's an issue here. It's an issue in most churches. I think what all of this is saying is that our worship together in this place with these people is a thermometer of our spiritual health. And it honors God's Sabbath command, which is rest in Jesus. That's the command. That's the basis of the command. Find your rest in Jesus. Not don't do all these things. Find your rest in Jesus. So I want to ask one more time, and I'm going to just pray. How are you doing with that? How's your rest going? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for these patient folks and the uh, immeasurable grace that they've given me this morning to go over. God, this is an important subject. It affects all of us. We are a driven society 
But we're not driven to you. We're driven in so many other ways. Help us to get off that highway, that expressway, God, and, and to pursue that loving, ongoing relationship with your son, Jesus, first and foremost. And to do it here with these people that you've given us, as well as other opportunities that you might give us during the week. But God, may we kind of weigh out our life and realize that we're wanting in so many ways that only you can answer, and that answer almost always is rest, resting in you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, mold even our desires to find our rest in Jesus. Thank you. In his name we pray. Amen.